The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment. I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. Well, we've done it once again. We have another great show for you today. Jeremiah Grossman is going to be on the show. Jeremiah doesn't need any introduction, but I'm going to cue him up anyway because that's what I do around here. Jeremiah is the Chief of Security Strategy for Sentinel One, and he is a professional hacker. He's the founder of the infamous White Hat Security Company, which today has one of the largest professional hacking armies on the planet, and he's a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so don't mess with the guy. <laughs> Jeremiah is very well known throughout the industry. He's received a number of industry awards. He's been publicly thanked by Microsoft, Mozilla, Google, Facebook, and many others for privately informing them of weaknesses in their systems. And that's basically a very polite way of saying he hacked them. His research has included new ways to surreptitiously turn on anyone's computer, video camera, and microphone from anywhere across the internet, sidestep corporate firewalls, abuse online advertising networks to take any website offline, hijack the email and bank accounts of millions, silently rip out saved passwords and surfing history from web browsers, and many other innovative cyber attack techniques, some so insidious and fundamental that many still have not been fixed today. So just to be clear, Jeremiah found those vulnerabilities through sound research and then worked with companies to mitigate them. He is definitely one of the good guys. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes Magazine, the New York Times, and hundreds of other media outlets around the world who regularly rely upon his expertise in the cybersecurity space. Jeremiah also served as the Chief Information Security Officer of Yahoo, among many other uh, experiences and, and jobs that he's had. And he's going to be right here with us on Task Force 7 Radio for the second and third segments of the show. But before Jeremiah joins us, I want to talk a little bit about the encryption debate because it's really starting to heat up again. And this is a problem that we have to solve. We have to solve this problem. I want to talk about Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein's remarks on encryption delivered at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland on October 10th, just a few weeks ago. His remarks were very, very well put together. And he made an extremely articulate and impassioned plea on why the government's need to obtain information pursuant to a legal court order trumps anyone's personal privacy. And it's absolutely necessary to enforce the law, and that's why companies should not be able to produce warrant-proof, warrant-proof technologies. So the Deputy Attorney General started off his remarks quite appropriately by referencing Navy tradition and talking about the oath that Navy personnel take when they swear to defend the nation. And each midshipman swears to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And he noted that our federal prosecutors take the same oath. And so he goes on to say that an oath is meant to be serious business, and the oath taker promises to live by certain rules in return for a privilege bestowed by the government. Your oath carries a solemn obligation. It obliges you to preserve our nation's commitment to the rule of law, and the words require you to honor that commitment not only when it's easy, but when it's difficult. Now, you can see where the Deputy Attorney General is going with this. The difficulty he is surely referencing is that public opinion is not on his side. 
But he clearly thinks, and he's definitely right in my humble opinion, that the Constitution and the law is, but it's complicated. It's complicated. Americans seem to have decided that their own individual privacy is more important than any one single criminal case. So this is a complicated debate that's going to take a few shows to kind of dig into and weed out what the issues are. But we're going to start talking about it today, and we will surely need to continue this dialogue on, on future episodes. So the Deputy Attorney General stated that one of the greatest challenges is encryption and how the law enforcement has no desire to undermine it. And he made that perfectly clear. But he did opine that the advent of warrant-proof encryption is a very serious problem and claimed that the law recognizes that legitimate law enforcement needs can outweigh personal privacy concerns. He recognized that our society has never had a system where evidence of criminal wrongdoing was totally impervious to detection, especially when officers obtain a court-authorized warrant. But this is the world that technology companies are creating and no one but law enforcement seems to care uh, it was sort of the message. He didn't actually say that, but that was the message that was coming out. And so he stated that these companies, notwithstanding all the good things that they do, do not have a right to create a right to absolute privacy. So he claimed that under the Fourth Amendment, communications may be intercepted and locked devices may be opened if they are used to commit crimes, provided that the government demonstrates showing a probable cause, which we all know. He goes on to say that warrant-proof encryption defeats the constitutional balance by elevating privacy above public safety. Encrypted communications that cannot be intercepted and locked devices that cannot be opened are law-free zones that permit criminals and terrorists to operate without detection by police and without accountability to judges and juries. So when encryption is designed with no means of lawful access, it allows terrorists and drug dealers and child molesters and fosters and other criminals to hide incriminating evidence. This is a big problem. This is a really big problem. I mean, some people probably don't care about fraudsters, believe it or not, or even drug dealers. People don't care. They think about their own privacy. But we're talking about, you know, think of a case of a kidnapped child where a cell phone or instant message program may have the answers to that child's whereabouts. Think about that. I want you to think about it. What if that was your child? And your child's life hangs in the balance while some technology company dispatches 12 lawyers to start talking about the privacy rights of society. I couldn't imagine the frustration. I mean, there's terrorist events and there's murders and carjackings and all kinds of terrible scenarios where victims could be found and future victims could be saved and, 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 and you can't because of the, the offender's privacy? It's frustrating just to even think about. I mean, lives are on the line here. He refers to the problem as going dark. You know, the threat to public safety that occurs when companies deprive law enforcement and national security investigators of crucial investigative tools. It's interesting that he makes that claim. He says that technology companies are purposely depriving law enforcement officers from effecting justice in these cases. I mean... Reflect on that for a second. Do you want to be the lawyer who prevented a child from being saved? No one does. No one does. So I got to tell you, I feel very strongly that we need to solve this problem because when you put the privacy issues on, on display, it seems to fall out and even some of the most outspoken law enforcement, former law enforcement officers in the country and, and government executives as well say that the debate falls on the side of privacy and I, and I still fall on that side myself. But it's hard to, to sleep at night when you think about it. I can't stand the fact that we can't solve this problem and we need a solution. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface here with this debate. I mean, we're going to need a few shows to really get into this, and I hope to have some people on here to make their case for both sides and then come up with a solution on how we need to move forward. Some recommendations, some solutions, some ideas. We need some smart people out in Silicon Valley to help us. I know you're listening out there. We need to engineer a solution that allows law enforcement to do their jobs, to save lives, while continuing to preserve the privacy of millions of Americans when those rights are legally afforded. That's what we need to do. We need to solve this problem. 
We're going to go to commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Jeremiah Grossman to see what he thinks about the Equifax hack and the encryption debate after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with a virtual rock star of the cybersecurity community the chief of security strategy for Sentinel One, and the founder of White Hat Security, Jeremiah Grossman. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. Thank you, George. Good to be with you. (laughs) All right. Let's start out with the obvious question, and I have you on the show, so I have to ask. What is the scariest part of the Equifax breach for you? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. What's the scariest part of the Equifax breach? I guess just the the data itself, and that no matter what we do at this point, we're going to be at risk of having all of our personal information, whatever they really had. And we never really got great clarity of how much of what personal data was in there. But the fact that we can't take it back, it's out there in the open, and there's really nothing uh, we can do at this point. We can say you must secure the data better next time, but it's now all gone. And, yeah, I think, I think that's what we're going to have to contend with for decades to come. So what do we learn from this? I mean, what are, what are breaches like Equifax and Sonic? Why are they still happening? I mean, why, is this still, why are we still reading about this in the news all the time? I think, you know, one way to, one way to look at it is that, uh, you know, they could have patched. We have all kinds of technical controls that they could have done that, uh, you know, maybe with, through compliance or something like that. We could have done those things. And the way I look at back on, on history of breaches like Equifax and others is that we had all the technical controls and know-how. It, it, this didn't need to happen, yet it did. So for me, I look at it as more like an incentives issue. And it really breaks down to this one, sta- this one statement that I heard written about Equifax. It's the companies we trust do not adequately protect our data. You know, that's what I was reading in the headlines. And when I looked at that statement, two things were, were just factually not true. One, we didn't entrust Equifax or any other. I mean, we didn't consent to anything that I'm aware of. And secondly, it's not our data. If it was our data, we could have said, you know what? You don't get to have that. That's ours. That's, you know, my social security number, my name, and my address, and my driver's license number. That data belongs to me. And so when you have a situation like that, there ends up being not a lot we can do. 
Um, there's no incentives for companies like Equifax to truly uh, protect our data because they're not beholden to us. Right. So if the, if the Equifax breach doesn't act as a wake-up call for companies to start putting the proper measures in place to safeguard their data, then, then what will? I mean, what's it going to take to get the message across to senior executives that, you know, this, these are the things that you have to do to protect your networks? Yeah, it's a great question. And and the thing is, I think we're awake. I'm awake. You're awake. 145.5 other million people are awake. I guarantee you that the the outgoing CEO and their CISO over at Equifax, they're awake too. They've had Senate uh, congressional meetings on this topic every single month of the year. They're awake. I don't think it's any more like, it's not an awareness issue anymore. It's an incentives issue anymore. Why would Equifax or anybody else that's transacting in personal and private information keep it safe. If they don't, what's the downside? And I was listening to a testimony or the exchange between the former CEO of Equifax and uh, uh, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, and it really came down to, she made this point, like, in this breach, it looks like you guys made money, <laughs> you know, because they get to sell all the anti-fraud stuff. And so that's not a good uh, market signal. So I think for me, the only way out of this um, I don't think com- uh, compliance or regulation is the answer because the bad guys will move too fast. I think it, the only viable option that I'm aware of is if you make a PII, intellectual property, and you assign it to the owner, whoever it is, me, you, or the next person. Right. So, so Jeremiah, these uh, cybersecurity insurance policies are, are, are really getting a lot of attention. There's a huge new marketplace for them. How do you see these mega breaches like Equifax and Yahoo and some others shaping the current and future cyber insurance policy? Uh, I don't think those actually are the big needle movers, to be perfectly honest. So uh, the way I was looking at it is I think this year uh, or thereabouts, depending on whose numbers you want to look at, uh, the cyber insurance industry is about $3 billion this year, and it's growing about 40 to 60%. And from all the data I've been able to gather about uh, claims being paid out, it's about a billion dollars in claims made. So they take in $3 billion, they pay out a billion, which will probably include Equifax and, and others, and they're making a ton of money. What really moves the needle for those guys, uh, you know, in terms of, of premiums and is systemic risk. They don't mind so much when a Target or an Equifax gets breached and they're going to have to pay out $100 million. They care if 100 Equifaxes get breached all at once where they could not tolerate that level of risk. And so far, with rare exception, WannaCry and Petia were a little bit like that, but not really. So there's so much going on right now. I mean, what, what is driving the biggest change in the cybersecurity industry in, in your estimation? I noticed it a couple of years ago where uh, I was looking at just I, uh, as a personal matter, I thought when I want to learn answers, when I want to see trends, I just follow the money. So where's the money being spent? And I looked at InfoSec and it's an $81 billion industry growing at about 5 to 7%. Um, and it's a hot market. I mean, that's what everybody says. It's in the headlines every day, but it's only growing at 5 to 7%. And then I came across uh, about five or six years ago uh, this, this concept called cyber insurance, and I've been following it since. And for the last several years, right now, like I mentioned before, it's growing. It's at $3 billion, but it's growing at 40 to 60%. And I started just doing some basic math, new money into cyber insurance as compared to new money into InfoSec, and the numbers were pretty close. And what that signaled to me is when the business has new, brand new money to spend on this cybersecurity problem, they're nearly equally likely to spend money on InfoSec to prevent the breach as they are to buy cyber insurance to prevent the loss. And so after you've spent $81 billion, you know, the business decides, you know, if everything's going to get hacked anyway, I might as well buy insurance. Now, that will come back to us, and I actually think it's a, in a positive way. Once the insurers get enough incident or claims data to properly assign the risk, they're going to start dictating standards uh, back to their clientele, back to the insured, on what per, uh, controls they must implement or their premiums will rise. And that will be accurate data, and that will have a way of decreasing the breaches or decreasing the losses that the insurance companies and the businesses will endure. I, I, personally, I think it's a good thing. Okay, I mean, we've talked about, you know, you mentioned that your research has shown that both the cyber insurance and cybersecurity industries are growing at about the same rate. And so what is, what is that and what does it show about how companies are approaching their cyber defense? So I, I think, 
I, I think it might, might be a little different than that. We might get confused in the language. But cyber insurance grows between 40 and 60% a year, InfoSec between 5 and 7% a year. So there's quite a gap there. And one, a reasonable person would think, well, InfoSec is just so much larger. But I think if you really looked at it, we might have hit what I can only describe as peak InfoSec. And uh, anybody that's been a CISO or a security VP can see this over time. It, let's say you're spending on a security program, you're spending $0 on a security program. And when you spend your first $100, you know, as an arbitrary number, your risk goes down a lot because you were doing nothing, you were doing nothing before. But over time, as you spend another thousand and another thousand, now you're spending millions, your budget dollar gets diminishing returns. So if you're looking at, let's pick numbers, the last 10, 20, 50, $100,000 of a multi-million dollar budget, is spending another 50000 on yet another security control really going to reduce your risk that much? Many, info, uh, many CISOs and many CFOs have said, like, well, why don't we just spend that on insurance? And if we get popped, you know, we'll get a $100 million policy or $50 million policy, and at least the business will be okay. Got it. Got it. All right, great. Thanks for clarifying that. So there's a lot of cybersecurity companies out there um, that are, are that are pushing their products. And, you know, I got to wonder, how are they to best convince potential customers that their product is worthwhile when we still see all these breaches happening on a regular basis? Uh, that is, do, we, do we get to the talk about the, uh, you know, security products and warranties? Is this what we're getting to? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, some of the, uh, you know, I mean, the CEO was up there when we talked about the congressional testimony. He was saying, hey, look, you know, uh, this is a technology failure. That's what he did say, right? So it's got to, you got to wonder, I mean, how are these companies, uh, you know, responding to, to that type of, I guess, criticism? <laughs> so, so one, I think he's right. There was a technology failure. Apache Struts had a vulnerability. There's no escaping that one. There was a defect in the product. Now, one would say, rightly so, that a patch was available months before, and they could have done other things, other mitigating controls, even if they couldn't apply the patch. So both sides are are right. Um, Equifax could have and should have done more, and there was a technology problem. And InfoSec products fall into this. So, again, I'm I'm big on incentives. And after 20 years in InfoSec, one of the things I don't, I never really was comfortable with is that when an entire market will sell products and services to customers, and when the products don't work, especially when they don't work as advertised, the company gets hacked and real people get hurt. And when the customer gets upset, the vendor gets to say, sucks to be you. You know, this came with no warranties, no liabilities, right. no return policies. It was just and that's best what I'm getting at. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't like, yeah. I don't like, I think that makes for a great market. In fact, I think that makes for like a used car lemon market. And maybe that's why we get all these breaches. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if I came up with it or I stumbled across the same idea on what's called cyber warranties. So if you sell, let's say, uh, an anti-malware product to a company and you make some promises, like I promise to stop malware. And if it doesn't and you suffer a loss, the vendor should have some liability in the equation. Mm-hmm. At the same time, like every warranty that we buy, the customer has some obligations as well. So, for instance, if you buy a, a watch, it says um, this is a water-resistant watch down to 100 meters. If you go below that, well, the warranty is not valid. So you, you have a responsibility there to protect the watch um, before it gets to 100 meters. So the same thing we can do in security products. You, if you use the product, Mr. Customer, as designed, um, we promise that it will work, and if it doesn't, we'll, we'll take care of the liability. Now you have both sides in acting in a true partnership. And I, again, and I think we'll get better outcomes that way since every since the customer doesn't want to get hacked and the vendor really doesn't want to get them to get hacked, and I think we'll get better outcomes overall across the industry. Right. So I, and that's exactly the point I was, I was asking about. And so, you know, when, when the CEO testified, he was actually, when he talked about the technology failure, he was actually talking about, this, the, the tools they used to scan the network that it missed the vulnerability that was out there. And so he kind of oh, traced sure. some of the blame on that as well. And, 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 you know, that's exactly what you just addressed. I mean, when we have these, you know, cybersecurity vendors, you know, out there that are, are pushing these products, what do they need to do to make sure that companies are in the best position to be protected from major breaches and attacks? And we know it's broken down into, you know, different, uh, different companies and different type of capabilities, whether it's endpoint or, you know, antivirus or whatever we're looking at, right? We break them down into the groups. But do you have any opinion on what these 
cybersecurity companies need to do different than they're doing today? Um, I think, you know, there's a 800 to 1,000 pre-IPO security companies, and I think there's a lot of uh, efficacy data going around. You know, some products clearly work, some products clearly don't, but I think one of the challenges is that the average customer can't tell the difference between the two. And and by the same token, vendors have a difficult time differentiating if they truly have a better mousetrap. Um, how do they how do they prove to the market through marketing or whatever messaging that people should take the time to look at them? I have a you know I think warranties have a way of cutting through all that. So one of the things I stumbled across just some unintended positive outcomes in you know selling warranties and designing them is that one of the complaints the infosec practitioner has is that quote unquote the business doesn't listen to us. We tell them what to do and they don't do it and. And there are reasons for this. So what a warranty does, if I, you know, I, I work at Sentinel One and we design, I'll just give this as an example. So Sentinel One has a warranty against ransomware. And we say, you must use the product like this, X, Y, and Z, you must do these things, which are the same things that the practitioner wants to do. So now if the business doesn't do it, they get the ability to tell the business, look, our million dollar policy warranty requires us to do these three things. If we don't and we get a breach, the warranty isn't going to get paid out. That signals a much stronger financial incentive to the overall business to do the right thing at the right time. So in that way, a warranty, though it does a little bit, it seemingly ties the hands of the organization and the practitioner and what they should do, it actually is in their best interest. So, you know, how do we hold these cybersecurity companies uh, responsible when a breach happens? I mean, we know who's responsible today, um, as you just explained. And if we want to have that shift where companies just can't come in and offer failed products that are, result in a breach, what would be the process uh, in your mind? Um, how would that play out from a high, you know, from a macro level? So, again, on, on those, the accountability, I like voluntary accountability. I don't like, uh, you know, regulation, things like that. It's just part of my ideology. So I like when customers ask for warranties. So if we want to get InfoSec companies, products and services vendors, to be accountable, it has to be in their best interest to do so as well. So if they have a warranty and it helps them differentiate and get more sales, that's a good thing. And... If the customer, through doing nothing wrong, gets breached, they shouldn't suffer the consequences of that. The vendor should. So that's where warranties come in. It solves the the incentives issue on both sides. So the one I've been, you know, uh, encouraging this behavior in the market, I do two things. One is I, I offer to vendors because I've set up many warranty programs in the past already. Um, there's about 18 in the market I'm aware of, and I've done about a half dozen of them. And uh, what, what should I say here? That I, I make an open offer that I'll help any security vendor that wants to offer a warranty and the steps to do so because it's not exactly trivial. And then I encourage all InfoSec customers to start asking their vendors if they have warranties because that's the number one issue. When a vendor doesn't offer a warranty, it's usually not because they don't want to. is They don't see the market demand for it. So you have to solve both the, the demand side and the supply side of the warranty market. So now more and more people are, you know, talking to their vendors about the possibility of offering warranties, and it's actually starting to work. So about two years ago, there was maybe four or five vendors that offer warranties. Today, there's about 18. So that signals the right kind of trend we want to see. Okay. All right. We're coming up against a commercial break. We'll be right back with more from Jeremiah Grossman after these short messages. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to Make a Difference every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. 
Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. How many milestones do we rack up in our lives? From marriage to changing jobs, buying a home, and starting a family. We think we have our money and finances figured out, but it isn't that easy. Learn how to plan, set, and achieve your financial goals by tuning into Money Counts, unleashing your money's hidden potential with host Debbie Peterson. It's time to take control of your personal cash flow. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Jeremiah Grossman, the Chief of Security Strategy for Sentinel One. So earlier in the show, I was talking about the, the strength of encryption and, and, and the effect that it's had on, on security uh, uh, in the marketplace. The strength of encryption has been the topic of discussion now for some time, especially with some of the battles between the Department of Justice and the tech companies over the last 24 months. What, what is your take on encryption? And when Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein says that the law recognizes that legitimate law enforcement needs can outweigh personal privacy concerns. What do you think about that? I think what they mean by that is that you need a warrant. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I, that's that's how I take it take to read it. So uh, if they have problems, yeah, I think I think he says he means when he he, he he means when they do have a warrant, right? So in some instances, they had a warrant and they still couldn't obtain the data that they wanted, right? And so I think that uh, you know he he's complaining about their inability to do that. Then it's then it's really not so much about uh, an issue between the power of a warrant or fighting crime and it is about uh let's say this the uh the fourth amendment if we can't have strong encryption then in a modern digital age we can't have the fourth amendment we you gotta you gotta be able to have both and so effectively what they mean is they if they want to weaken encryption that means they're effectively outlying math and i don't think it's really going to help anybody right Right. So is, is the deputy attorney general believable when he says that responsible encryption is actually achievable and that we can have secure encryption that allows access only upon judicial authorization? So from a technology perspective, yeah, I mean, I get it. Yeah, it's achievable, certainly. But how does that play out in the real world? I mean, it, in, in your mind, if we're giving everybody the keys, you know, to, you know a back door, so that law enforcement, when they do have a warrant, can come in and actually access the information they're looking for. I mean, how long is it going to take for, for, for other people to get access to those keys and for basically that, that encryption to become useless? We, we all understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to do their job well. They're trying to fight the bad guys and, you know, and our hats off to them on that particular mission. But there's certain trade-offs that we don't want. So the first thing when you were saying that, I would kind of came to mind is, we know very well how to make crappy encryption. Like we, we know we've, we have a long, you know, history of, we, we know how to do that. We know how to make backdoors and things like that. But I suppose the second one I would say is, let's say we made, we had a perfect crypto algorithm that had a golden master key. Please tell me what state or government, federal government or whatever department that hasn't been hacked. Like there's no real way that we can really be sure that that key won't be misused by those inside our own government or won't be stolen by those outside of, of the government. 
you know, that is just a very dangerous game. And just like, let's say we went back to the Equifax breach, once we get caught by that once, once that master key is out, we're all done. Like, you know, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Right. So, I mean, in essence, I mean, it doesn't, is it really, is it really achievable what he's trying to say then? I mean, it, it sounds like you're saying that it isn't. I think it's I think it's technologically achievable to create encrypt, encrypt encryption with a backdoor or a special set of keys. I, I don't think any crypto expert says it can't be done. That's right. That what That's they're right. saying is it shouldn't shouldn't be done. You know, it's just it's just too it's too dangerous. We can't control these sorts of things in that way. The uh, it's 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 a not a forgiving it's not a forgiving technological model. So it's not like anybody that's speaking out against it is saying it's not true or we don't like their intent. Is that we can't, we don't know of a way to do it to do it safely. So when I look at his comments, he makes a really good point when he says that American companies are fast to accommodate foreign governments who routinely suppress their own populations when selling their products and services abroad, but not as willing to accommodate U.S. law enforcement when they possess legally obtained warrants pursuant to United States laws. So I guess my question is, are American companies taking advantage of the freedoms that we have over here? I mean, should they be forced to, you know, create these backdoors for, for law enforcement? Because from a technology perspective, what we just discussed, sure, it's, it's definitely something that can be done. But, I mean, it's not a good idea <laughs> in terms of, you know, the long-term security and viability of that kind of model. So, I mean, but should American companies be forced to do that? So, yeah. So I mean, they jump through hoops for everybody else, right? So yeah, so and, that's, and actually, I like the way you frame that because I think this is where we get to the point of what makes America great is that we have these freedoms, we have these liberties, we have these civil liberties and protections, unlike other countries. So, for instance, if you want, if a you know, if a private corporation wants to do business in another country, and by by law, by their law, they have to give up a backdoor or the keys or make data available, unless they want to be removed from that country, they're going to have to play by law enforcement or the rule, the, the law of the land over there. The laws in the U.S. are different. You know, the population gets to protect itself better. So in the U.S., these same companies are are operating within the confines of the law, and they're doing only what they're obligated to do. And I don't see a problem with that. If if the if the argument is that we should have, you know, if if people, if our pop, if the argument is that our populace, I keep stumbling over myself, should have less personal and privacy protection as another country, just come out and say it. Because I think that's really what they're asking for. Right. So look, on the same day that he was having this discussion and making this speech about encryption, um, and he was pleading for responsible encryption, news broke out that the antivirus from Kaspersky had been programmed to spy on anyone using their software specifically employees and contractors of the United States government. So what do you make of these revelations about Kaspersky and what's going on with them in the news? How does that affect this whole conversation? Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a nice convenient way to go. Look, we, 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 we can't have these keys because we can get hacked and Kaspersky is one, uh, one particular way. So I think in this way, I think that Kaspersky story is really important, but it's just a convenient example that lends credibility that there probably is going to be no real good or safe way um, to hold golden master keys or backdoors and, and keep them safe. But I really reject the notion that res, uh, the, the notion of the concept called responsible encryption. I mean, what is that? It's, it's just math. Are we, are we saying that those that create all the crypto that makes the web possible are irresponsible people? That's just a weird, weird way to say it. You, I don't think you win many friends by calling the other side irresponsible if they don't give, if you don't give them what you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think his, it, his his point is that American companies shouldn't have the right to create unbreakable encryption when the United States government has a warrant to obtain the information that is secured by that encryption. And if it's I guess, if it's not if, if it's not quote unquote see, if it's not unbreakable, is it really can it really be considered crypto? You know, right. so that's that's the I mean, way. Do you, do you think it's possible that American companies are doing the same thing for the United States government with these antivirus programs, the software programs? It, it's entirely possible. I mean, at this point, from everything we've seen, everything from um, uh, everything from Bradley Manning to Snowden to you know, you know, our government goes out of whack from time to time. And so, is it possible that they're using 
you know, anti-malware products, which are effectively rootkits. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. There's really limited difference between an evil rootkit and anti-malware at this point. And if the weakest, if the easiest path into a foreign adversary or even a domestic one is through the antivirus, they will. And I've actually started seeing this most of my career in the private sector is that the pen testers out there have, I won't say it's common, but you have seen them use uh, antivirus as a way into the enterprise. So the first time I came across it really is when uh, the pen tester knew that the mail server had AV on it and what the AV was because they were sending emails bouncing because there's viruses in it and they found what the AV was. So they reverse engineered the AV product. They got a copy of it, reverse engineered it, found a vulnerability, sent another email in that had the payload knowing it would be interpreted by the mail server and then they popped the mail server. So imagine for a moment that you were hacked because you had a security product, not despite of it. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, and I was talking so, about that at the beginning of the show. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so, so can I imagine a government using a warrant or even without one doing that? Absolutely. I, 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 I would be disappointed if they didn't. Hey, look, I mean, I, you know, I used to be a, a Secret Service agent, and I – you know, I know the value of getting the information from a warrant that you work hard to get and you, and you develop all the probable cause you need to get that information. And then the frustration that occurs after you're told that it's not available, uh, especially when in some instances, uh, like recently we had, you know, terrorist attacks when they were trying to get access to, you know, mobile phones and some of the information that was on there. They ended up not needing to get the company's help. They ended up breaking the encryption anyway. But I guess the point is, you know, there's it's such a fine line, and I do fall on the side of the privacy right now. I, I just think that the the effect that it would have um, for us to lose the privacy uh, that we are afforded here uh, as Americans, I think that would be uh, a terrible thing that would happen in society. Uh, I, I, we got to find a way to balance this. I mean, what, what does this tell us about third-party risk? I mean, th- this wasn't discovered by some review of the code by a public or private corporation. I mean. You know, when we talk about the Kaspersky attack, I mean, do we have to change tactics when assessing third party? I mean, it was the Israelis that were spying on, you know, the, the Kaspersky that actually found this information and advised the NSA. It wasn't some company doing a third party review on Kaspersky, right? So, I mean, do we have to take a, another look at how we do things with third parties? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as you well know, this has been a long standing problem. So, be- before we get too far into it, you know, um, we know what this, uh, the Department of Defense uh, has said about Kaspersky, that they were used as a conduit. They don't know if they're complicit or otherwise, but as a, used of a, as a way to hack U.S. stuff. And we knew the, we, and we, apparently we knew this because the Israelis had apparently hacked Kaspersky and they saw there was a party going on. <laughs> I guess they weren't the only ones. <laughs> So, but what we haven't got is a whole lot of evidence. So Kaspersky is, you know, vehemently denying all of this stuff. And, and now they're getting ripped out of the U.S. And we don't have a whole lot of uh, real hard evidence. And it would be nice if we did, not only for Kaspersky's benefit, but if, if we could see the tactics used by others to use uh, anti-malware products against us, we can look to see if the private sector was compromised as well by, this, by the same IOCs, the same indicators of compromise. But um, so we don't, have, we don't have that. Um, and I, I think, yeah, you know, all I, I, think all I had to do was change the keyword search in Kaspersky. They could, they could you know, readjust their, their target search for anything they wanted. I mean, they were specifically looking for classified documents in this case, targeting, you know, contractors and other people that work for the United States government. You know, I get it, but they could easily, and I talked about this in the first segment, they could easily change that tactic and they could, you know, target you know, those keywords for anything they wanted to look at the political affiliations, uh, financial information. And who, says they, and who says they didn't? <laughs> like, that's right. They, that's they, right. They, they might have had already. So I think third-party risk is a is a huge deal. I mean, you look across any IT enterprise. I don't care how small. You got a little bit you host yourself, a little bit in this cloud provider here, a little bit in this service provider over here. We're drowning in third-party risk. And even if you do an audit or an assessment at one point in time on any third party, it changes the very next moment. So it's everything from this product, it's the service providers to the products we buy to the software that we use to build the next big thing. You know, it's this is an ecosystem. You know, this is a, a root network that we're all kind of working together on this stuff. So to, as a basic answer to your question, yes, third-party risk is a major is a major issue to tackle. I just don't know if we have a great processes to even understand it yet. 
So what are we to make with these North Koreans? I mean, stealing over 200 gigabytes of military plans from the South Koreans using anti-software yet again, antivirus software. I mean, what are we to make of that? What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, this is, I guess I've heard the term used, a uh, cyber cold war. I mean, this is modern day warfare. It's, it's not going to stop. It's not going to end. You know, why, why build it for a billion when you can steal it for a million? I mean, this is how they make their money. This is how they protect their country, good, bad, or otherwise. And, you know, for them, this is just business as usual. And this should be considered our new normal. And it's not just the North Koreans. It's us. North Koreans, as I'm sure you all know, many countries are going to be on, in on the act. I mean, everybody's hacking everybody at this point. So I think we should get better at our, what, what do we call it here, uh, our threat intel. Who are the attackers? What do they want? And what are their tactics? And then we can best use that information to best drive up their cost. Because at the end of the day, it's always an, IR, uh, an ROI model. So... I mean, what does what it tell us about the North Koreans? I mean, you know, I, I, I know we're worried about the proliferation of, of nuclear weapons, as we should be uh, very much so. And, you know, we're paying attention to a lot of different things that are going on in the Asian Peninsula over there. But what does this tell us about their cyber warfare capability? And, I mean, did we miss the boat? I mean, we, did we miss, uh, you know, watching the, how fast they accelerated their cyber warfare capability? Is it more, much more beyond what we thought it was? Um, I, when you say we, I think is the InfoSec community. Yeah, I think we had suspicions that, well, we're all going to guess that every cyber uh, cyber offense capability is going to go up because it's really cheap to go up. I mean, you know, if I gave if you gave me or I gave you a million bucks to start up a cyber warfare capability, give you six months and you form a pretty, you know, pretty crack team for just a million dollars. And uh, so any country can do that. So imagine if you can spend a billion dollars or $500 million, it's going to be a pretty awesome team. You're going to buy exploits. You're going to tool up. You're going to do training. So you're definitely going to do these things. While, and while you're telling the, you know, uh, explaining the North Korean thing, I remember, uh, remember the Sony hacks and, uh, you know, the, uh, the movie, the interview was supposed to, you know, Sony was hacked because the North Koreans didn't like the, the movie, the interview and right. everybody was for why do you say the North Koreans show us the evidence and I believe it was the NSA that popped up and said uh, we know we know it was the North Koreans and we asked why they go well we were in their systems and we saw them do it <laughs> so like, you know, like one you're 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 in their system so this might be payback I mean so what's going on here so uh, you know it's just a weird scenario so we're hacking other people other people are hacking us and the private sector gets caught in the crosshairs and uh you know, one other story that I like to share is uh, remember the Google Aurora attacks from I think 2009, way back when. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So one of the uh, the narratives that I saw is like, you know, why do why does the, the Chinese APT why are they hacking Google and specifically Gmail? And one of the narratives I got on Back Channel was that well, in the U.S. we have spies and spies, uh, you know, say Chinese spies will be in the U.S. and they'll use Gmail for communication, at least back in 2009. And then our government, who has suspicion of somebody being a spy, will send a warrant or whatever else they need to over to Google and say, tap this account. You know, we want all the email from this account. And then now if you're the Chinese government and you want to figure out which of your spies are burnt, the easy, best and easiest way to do that is by hacking Google to see who has a tap on their account. So all of a sudden, cyber warfare starts happening on private sector uh, machines or computers rather than government computers. So like I said before, governments are hacking other governments and the rest of us in the private sector are in the crosshairs and we're going to have to defend against the same adversaries. So, you know, the United States government has pretty much put the protection of critical infrastructure in terms of when it comes to cybersecurity in the private sector's hands. And not to get into the debate about when it becomes, you know, you know, when the United States government should actually do something on a cyber attack against their critical infrastructure here in the United States. But what should private corporations be doing to protect themselves from these types of nation state attacks? I mean, is there a different type of model that we should be looking at or is our philosophy correct is our current strategies uh, you know on target when it comes to nation state attacks what's your opinion so i think uh, let's say as a security controls matter and these are just 
vanilla you know basics of infosec one is you have to understand what your risks are understand what your security gaps are and put some proactive security controls in place so you can increase the difficulty of what it would take for somebody to break into your system whoever they happen to be you know for things like critical infrastructure i mean that's a, that's a hot target i mean that somebody's going to want to go after that so you're going to have to <clears throat> be you're going to have to accept that an apt is going to go after you you know with a professional team and try to get in so when a professional team goes after you you have to expect that at some point they're going to they're going to win. You, your defense can't be expected to be perfect all the time. So then, all of a sudden, you have to be able to detect re, detect the breach and respond quickly and have a resilient network. So I think it comes in two halves. One, you have to get real proactive in what we do to increase the bar, and that if, if something should go wrong, the system and the way it's designed should be resilient in that if we suffer a catastrophe, if the grid goes down, that it's going to go down for an hour and not three months. And I think with there, if you force the adversary to spend extraordinary amount of time and money to bring you down, only to see you come back uh, back up on your feet within hours, you know, within hours, that's really demoralizing. And that's that's I think that's where we have to get to. And fortunately, the energy grid, as one example, has been built fairly resiliently over time because they have to deal with everything from storms and floods and car wrecks and squirrels. I mean, squirrels are the number one cause of a power outage these days. <laughs> so they actually, by extension, have made the grid pretty resilient. And again, it's not going to be perfect, and maybe there are ways to bring it down, but it seems right now to be pretty resilient. If we're going to bring the government into the equation, um, I would, I would first ask, what do they bring to the table? What do they have to offer that the private sector can't other than more money? If it's just a more money thing, give them a grant. What, what, can, they, what can they do for us to protect the grid? And let's start the conversation there. So, Jeremy, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, we got to go. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on the show. I hope you come back. I want to talk about the convergence of physical and IT security. I know that you have a lot of experience in that, and I'd love to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much, George. It was great being here. All right, great. Uh, that does it for this show. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.